Welcome to Free Thoughts. I'm Aaron Powell. And I'm Trevor Burris. Joining us today is Steve Horwitz. He's a distinguished professor of free enterprise at the Miller College of Business at Ball State and economics editor at libertarianism.org. Welcome back to the show, Steve. My pleasure to be here as always. One of the themes in what you've written, what you've talked about over the years is how amazing the world is and how much more amazing it's getting and the stories of why and how that happens. But in the last few years, almost two now, yeah. Two years, you have had a cancer diagnosis and have dealt with that illness. How has that impacted or changed these views of optimism and amazement that you've spent so much of your career talking about? Well, it's certainly the case that it's tested one aspect of that, which is sort of the expectation that one will live longer than, than, uh, than, than one's parents or one's grandparents did, right? And, and in that sense, I think, you know, uh, we all know that statistics are statistics. Somebody is not going to live that long. Uh, so in that sense, I think that's the, that's the hard part. And the hard part really is I, I, I still believe that all of the world's getting better and better and more awesome, and I'm just not going to see as much of it as I thought I would. It, it appears. I mean, you know, you never know for sure. Uh, and that's that's sad and unfortunate, and that's that's you know uh, the hard part. On the other hand, right? Um, I think two things. One, it has increased my appreciation for the power of medicine and 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 sort of research and technology and all these kind of things and how much that's changed i mean i i my the cancer i have is multiple myeloma which is a a, a plasma cancer it's kind of like leukemia and, and and all those um and the flat out right 20 years ago if i was had this diagnosis i'd be dead by now i mean within 2 years i'd probably especially with the version i have i'd be dead uh, and and the drugs that have come out really since about 2002 one drug in particular in 2002 uh and a series of other drugs since then have changed the treatment of this disease in an incredible way we still don't have a cure, but we are able to keep patients alive for, for, I say we as if I, you know, uh, the medical profession is able to keep uh, patients alive for much longer than was the case, say again, even 10 years ago, frankly. Two or three new drugs every year. There's all kinds of options out there. And, and, you know, the guys just won the Nobel Prize for immunotherapy. Uh, type stuff that's being used. I mean, all the weaponry is sort of being thrown at it. And while there still is no cure, um, the ability to sort of treat it and manage it is much greater than it used to be. So, so at one level, I, I'm, I'm, you know, that fits, right? That that's I'm appreciative of that. I'm appreciative of, 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 of those changes. I think the second thing is, uh, is part for me part of that life is awesome stuff is gratitude. And even before I was sick, uh, sort of approaching the world with an attitude of gratitude, as the kids say, uh, is, I always thought was a good thing, right? Sort of being a – recognizing how lucky you are to live when you live, recognizing all the great things that I've been able to do in sort of my my personal life, my career, all these kind of things, right? And sort of seeing that gratitude in the bigger picture. I had a conversation a month or two ago with my good friend Don Boudreau about this. And Don shares – you know, this sort of view of the world, right? And and as Don pointed out to me, he said, you know, if you'd been born a hundred years ago, you might not have made it this far, right? Or might not have made it past one, right? And 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 your life, as you know, you've you know, however many years you end up living, I'm 55 right now, however long I end up living, right? You got 
years of quality that human beings in the past have never been able to have and do things that humans haven't been able to do. And, and that's, you know, there's something maybe stoic about that. There's something, uh, it's, 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 you know, I think maybe sometimes people might hear that as a kind of weird rationalization, but I, it's, it's genuine, right? I mean, that's, it's like, okay, um, you know, I don't know what's left on the clock, but whatever's left on the clock, you know, uh, all of the things that have happened in my life, well, I don't want to say all of them, but many of them, most of them, uh, you know, uh, have been awesome and, and have been great. And, and I've been able to do things that, that humans just haven't been able to do before. And so let's, let's look at it that way. You know, I, I'd like more. I, I would love to live to 90 or 100 or whatever it might be. But if not, okay, right? I mean, that's, you know, uh, we're, we're, we've still got all these things that, that, that others haven't had. Gratitude as a, Political idea, or maybe I don't want to use politics per se, but how do you think it fits in on a broader scheme that that perhaps some libertarians or types of libertarians, maybe maybe not all libertarians, but types of libertarians uh, have gratitude as something that actually animates their political ideas, right? And so you it, you have it's very important to be have gratitude. And you see it all the time in discussions of good mental health, like make sure you understand what you have and but that often is just confined to having good mental health yourself. But like if you bring it out and say, well what 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 about the world in general? How should we approach the world in general if we have gratitude? Yeah, I, I think I think it's tricky, right? Because for me, part of the reason I find all this sort of economic history and sort of reminding people, you know, how much better the world is than it used to be, you think about stuff like Hans Rosling's work and all this, right? Um, uh, part of it is precisely to to cultivate an attitude of gratitude. Right? It works. <laughs> um, uh, you know, Jonah Goldberg in his most recent book kind of compares gratitude to resentment, right? And that's so much of the polit politics today is a politics of resentment. And I think, I think to that degree, right, uh, uh, shifting towards a, a politics or an, a, a perspective of gratitude, I think is really useful. Resentment doesn't help us. Resentment is, is at best a zero sum game, maybe a negative sum game. Definitely. And, and gratitude at least may, helps us recognize how far that we've come. I think the, the danger with gratitude, of course, is that, you know, you don't want to go so far that you overlook the, the things that are left that we can address that aren't, but Understandably, people aren't grateful about. I mean, we, we've made incredible advances in dealing with global poverty, but there's still 750 million or whatever folks, right, who under under two dollars a day. So we, we need to think about that. Or we look around the United States and we sort of say, you know, we see the problems in a place like Baltimore. The problems are real. You have to attribute them the way the president has, but the problems are real. Uh, and and problems in rural America are real. We, again, whatever solutions we might. Libertarians have our solutions for them, but sort of not letting gratitude turn us into this kind of, you know, pure rose colored glass sort of Panglossian view where everything, everything's awesome Lego movie. And instead, you know, recognizing that, hey, we're a lot better than we used, off than we used to be, but we've still got problems we've got to address. So I think, and, and I, I also think, by the way, I'd like to think, I might be wrong, that gratitude sells better than resentment, but, but, <laughs> Doesn't seem like it these days. Uh, but the market's a little bit low right yeah, now. But maybe right. maybe long term futures long -term, are where you should yeah, be looking yeah, that's for. Right. That's yeah. right. And I think gratitude. I mean, we can have you know gratitude in a freestanding sense, but usually gratitude is towards someone or some people. Um, it's 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 a fostering connection. I'm, I was it was just over the weekend. We 
um, talking about like of attitudes of libertarians um, or some libertarians, we tweeted out one of libertarians.org's Twitter accounts tweeted out a, a link to a story that we published that in part talked about infant mortality rates and, and how there were parts of the country that had higher infant mortality than others. And someone replied to it saying, um, this isn't about – like the state shouldn't do anything about this. Therefore, it's not worth talking about. And that – because you know, as libertarians, all we, all we care about is like what the state should do or not do and then anything else is just kind of off the table or meaningless or you know, like a waste of time. And that struck me as just a rather unfortunate view and, of the world. Yeah. But, but it's also that, that kind of – like we should care – I mean it, part of the thing that motivates what all of us do is because we care so much and because we have – I mean the gratitude towards others and comes with then wanting to repay them for that, to make things better yeah. for them in the way that things were made better for us, the you know kind of cheesy phrase of pay it forward. Yeah. But like that, that should be an animating principle yeah. of – so much of what we do and we shouldn't just cut that off when it comes to like, well, the state. Right. Right. And, and I also, I mean, I think it's weird, right? It's sort of the politics of gratitude is not a necessarily a gratitude toward particular people, though it can be, you know, Norman Borlaug, for example, right? Or someone like that, right? But, but it's, it's a gratitude about institutions, about sort of, you know, f gratitude toward being in a place where Mostly the rule of law still holds, right? And sort of those sorts of things and sort of saying, right, right. The reason why I've had 55 years of, 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 you know, awesome life is because I'm in a place where that's possible, where, where people are sufficiently free anyway, right? And if, and I think sort of appreciating that and, and also, you know, the infant mortality example is a great one, right? We, sh as you say, we should be celebrating that. As human beings, right? Not libertarian or not. As human beings, that's a when you know that history and you know what we've done in the last hundred, hundred twenty-five years to reduce infant mortality. Uh, that's one of the most amazing accomplishments that humans have done uh, to to bring children to the world and not assume half of them will die before they reach age one or five or whatever. Have you found yourself feeling more gratitude? Obviously, the things you discussed, but even to people, yeah, and and not taking that for granted. Oh, I guess yes. it's almost the definition yeah, this, of gratitude. Yeah, this is the right. This is the this is the hard part, right? Uh, emotionally, the hard part. I mean, you know, uh, I made a choice early on to be very public about my disease and and my experience with it, uh, and the, the sort of outpouring of support and love and sort of feeling like you've got that that army behind you on Facebook and wherever else is just in, incredibly important. Um, and and uh, you know, it the, the old everyone says this. It shouldn't take something like this, right? You shouldn't have to, you know, uh, it should shouldn't wait to your funeral for people to say nice things about you, right? Uh, but but okay we're here and and sort of to see that outpouring of support and love and 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 actually an appreciation for my work too that's the thing that kind of caught me by surprise right i mean um people saying things and people i and not just sort of you know friends uh, people who i whose own work i respect very deeply saying to me you know we we need your voice right um we 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 need you in this conversation um while at one level that 
Ugh, that hurts, right? That's like, Ugh, that's because I want to be there and, and, you know, I'm not how much longer, I don't know. But at another level, it's, yeah, thank you, right? And that, that's that sort of gratitude. And, and I should mention too, right? You know, sort of things libertarians, when we think about libertarians in the state, right? You know, we can't forget civil society and the, the rest of the world. The, the outpouring of sort of support and material and other sorts of, Offers of help from from our friends, from family, from my neighbors, right? All these sorts of things have been incredible too. And in the case of my neighbors, we you know we had moved into this development about eight months before I was diagnosed. They barely knew us, but yet they're shoveling our walk and they're bringing us food and they're you know take can we take the dog? Do you need us to take the dog? So whatever. So uh, that you know you don't really understand. I think how deeply embedded you are. In those social networks and how much people will rise to the occasion until until something like this happens. Again, it's it's. I think it's an interesting question to think about how we can recognize and activate those systems of support without it having to be sort of in a crisis or a health thing or whatever, right? How how do we how do we help people know they're there? And, and sort of what are the other kinds of situations where that would be really valuable? Do we know family and friends who are, you know, someone lost a job or, or whatever it might be or has a sick, you know, kind of sick kid, I mean, whatever. You can think of a million things, right? How, how do you do that? I mean, I, I chose to be public and, and that made it easier for people, I think, to come forward. But, but I would love to live in a world where those sorts of things happen more often. I mean, how, how you cultivate that because the things – so your cancer diagnosis or – Someone dies and then we say the nice things about them or someone loses. These are all like acute and and noticeable events. Um, and this is why like – so one of the things that uh, drives me nuts is when people kind of sneer at the GoFundMe accounts that pop up when something bad happens. And so someone gets sick and this GoFundMe account starts and it raises an extraordinary amount of money and, and you get this this like, you know – they don't take this as a moment of wow look at look at the the amazing thing that humanity can do and and that that strangers i mean it's often just absolute strangers who see a story and decide they want to to contribute um but they look at it as like this is a condemnation of our way of life because we wouldn't need this if we had socialized medicine taking care of people or we wouldn't need this if we had you know protections against getting fired or that that these kind of moments of genuine and really inspiring humanity aren't signs of inspiration but they're signs of like decline and decay and corruption and and not caring so i on the one hand like i wish we would stop doing that and i think we we recognize how amazing this stuff is but on the other hand it is the case that this stuff always latches on to acute things and and i don't know i don't know how to address that because it feels like part of the reason is you know all of us have our lives and we're caught up in them and we're we're doing our things and we have you know lots of stuff going on lots of stuff pulling our attention and so we're not um, and I don't think this is a condemnation of us it's just like we don't have we don't have the mental space to be kind of constantly thinking of the welfare of everyone else until there's an event that then makes it very clear and then we just shift our focus right and I I don't know how to do it either and I'm not I think you got so to the real problem at the end, which is our, you know, our ability to get out of our own lives, right? And, and in general, the, the Adam Smith point being, we pay much more attention to the to the cut on our finger than we do to the death of a million Chinese, right? We're it until even even when it's in our face. Interestingly, right? We we 
the transaction costs of actually helping the million Chinese are much lower than they used to be. We we can in ways, and they get more help too. Yeah, like they get after more help. the the yeah. earthquake, the tsunami in yeah. two thousand four, yeah, yeah, yeah. it was unbelievable. Yeah. About. Yeah, so I I don't know I don't know how to do that. I mean, I think it's an interesting challenge to sort of think about whether there isn't a kind of platform economy type way of doing this where where we, you know, I mean, GoFundMe is as you say acute, right? It's for specific things. But but you know, imagine it's you know, could someone create something that was the equivalent for particular kinds of problems that people might face, but not specific ones that have arisen yet, right? I don't know. It's an interesting question. Insurance? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, well, insurance I mean, can't love you in the, in the right. proper well, I, way. I do, and I, I do want to make one comment about, I mean, you know, maybe it's obvious, particularly to sort of libertarian listeners, but but the 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 sort of condemnation thing, right? If you've ever dealt with the bureaucracy, <laughs> the, the government bureaucracy whether it's healthcare or whether it's, you know, whatever, right? You want to talk about not being treated like a human being and sort of, you know, if, if the argument is the fact that we have to fund these things on the fly through GoFundMe somehow speaks to our lack of, you know, humanity that, that we don't have these problems taken care of by the state, you know, come on. Uh, the reality of how, of what happens when we do try to do those things through the state is, is way more uh, way more of a condemnation of us as human beings, right, than the fact that we have to do this, you know, these other kinds of ways. It also strikes me that, I mean, I'm a little bit of a cynic. I mean, I, I no. say I'm, I'm a realist, but that's what cynics <laughs> always say, right? But I also constantly tell people that to be, well, at least I think, the right kind of libertarian actually requires a significant amount of faith in people that a lot of people on the on the other side of these debates just simply don't have, right? That these – that there's enough care out there, that there's enough attention, that there's enough people who would be willing to to fund – you know, if we did away with all – all state-based, you know, medical treatment pods or, or just, you know, cooking dinner as, as you said. I mean I find – Sometimes when people say we we have to, you know, people won't be nice about this, and and I I don't expect them to give to charity. I think in their mind they never give to charity, and then they extrapolate to, or there's like everyone will cheat on this, and I'm I'm thinking in the back, you know, they're going to game the system and they're going to cheat on this, and I'm thinking in the back of my mind, do you do that all the time? You know, is that, is, is that are you just extrapolating from your own behavior? You know, so I think, you know, finding people to be you know, cynical about how you know what attention they can have or whatever, but also that when push comes to shove, caring, good people can do a lot on their own. I think that's right, and and I th I think you know we don't we don't have enough confidence in you to care enough, so we're going to boss you around and make sure that you, you know, that you have to care. Care, and we'll put care in some quotes there, right? Yeah, no, I think that's right. Um, and 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 it is I, I, sort of one of the great things. That has come out of this for me over the last couple of years is precisely this, right? Is to see so how many, you know, th that that faith in other people has been restored or sort of built up in so many ways. And I want to make one small little point here. I, you know, my, my neighbors have been incredible, and and we're in this development of about thirty five, thirty six houses and all that. And I looked at that New York Times uh, graphic that came out a while back that broke down the two thousand sixteen election down to precincts, right? It's terrific. And and the precinct which covers my neighborhood was like dead fifty fifty, right? And I and and I take pains to remind myself as much as I loathe Cheeto Mussolini, <laughs> right? Uh, half of my neighbors voted for him, and some of that half who voted for him have shoveled my walk and brought us dinner, 
right? And check, just even ask, how you doing, right? And and that I think is, you know, worth remembering given the fractured state of our political discourse that, that there's some bad people who voted for Trump and there's some bad people who, you know, are feeding at the trough and, you know, uh, toasting marshmallows over the over the fires he started, uh, but there's also people who voted for him for other reasons who are good people in in so many ways, and I think you know just that that's been a good reminder for me too to remember that that half those people in my neighborhood voted that way, and and before I start saying things about Trump voters, just let's remember who we're talking about here. When we were chatting in my office earlier today, we and you mentioned this briefly, but the the role that social media and for you particularly Facebook has has played in this um, was both really interesting, but also one of these things where that was an avenue for support um, and an outlet for expression that didn't exist twenty years ago. That you know, I mean, you could have written and received letters yeah. from people, but not, not BBSs. Yeah, <laughs> not even that. Not the same. Yeah, I, so I think I had a colleague at St. Lawrence who lost her husband of a short number of years. They were somewhat older than me, and I watched her grieve on Facebook. And it struck me that uh, her ability to do that and the support she got from her Facebook friends and real friends through, through that and her ability to talk about it and, and sort of get those things out on the table over Facebook was really helpful to her and was treated really respectfully by her friends, right? And and this was now, you know, maybe seven, eight, ten years ago. Um, not that far, five, six, seven years ago. And so I've always thought about this question of how, you know, uh, what the best thing that Facebook does is keep us connected to people who we otherwise have, would have no idea what's happening in their lives and they have no idea what's happening in our lives, right? And and so for me, the decision to sort of be public and to use Facebook as the way to do that seemed obvious. And again, sort of having that support, having people, you know, sort of cheerleading squad, um, and frankly, you know, I got I've got nurses and doctors on there too, right? So so every you know that sort of I'm not looking for advice, but but I'm but they often will say, you know, that's good, and you know, here's something to think about. So I think that that's keeping those connections is is really really important, um, and it 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 helps you. It's sort of connected to the gratitude thing in a way, right? That that there's I mean, at one level, you've got more people out there who you you know sort of an audience, as it were, to sort of reflect back at you, right? Whatever, whatever it is. But at the same time, it makes you realize, you know, there's a lot of people out there who, you know, who, who care about me and, and who I care about and who I want, you know, I want, uh, to be sort of part of this. I think the other thing that we talked about with, with social media is to me, the fascinating one. And I think obviously when you are facing an incurable disease, though not imminent death, right? You, you think a lot about, Death and dying in in all kinds of ways, and one of the things that has struck me is is that I'm not you know I, I don't believe in an afterlife. I mean, I'll be happy if there's a good one anyway, right? And I was as I was saying to Aaron earlier, I think hell is something like still being conscious and like being tied to a chair and knowing stuff's happening, but you can't be part of it, right? That's that's hell, okay? But but if you're a sort of a materialist and you're dead, you're dead. You're not you know once you're dead. You're dead, right? And you're not dealing with this. So the hardest part is sort of what's happening leading up to that and thinking about the impact that 
your death will have on other people. It makes me, you know, very, very sad. It's the hardest part of this, sort of thinking about what this will do to my wife, to my children, to my stepchildren, to my friend. I mean, you know, it's not like a you know, you get hit by a car or something. It's a surprise. It's a shock. But th this is a little different. But even so, right? You know, you just say that's a that it, it. I hurt for them for how much they will hurt. But the interesting thing about Facebook and other social media is I think the degree of hurt we feel in that situation is related to the presence people have in our lives from day to day, right? The people who are wives and children and so on who we see every day, you're not there suddenly and then boom, right? How do you, you know, we even I was talking recently about spending time in my house without my dog in the house, right? When the dog's not in the house, like getting groomed or something, it's weird, right? It's it's weird. There's I have this program that runs, where's the dog? What's the dog doing? And it's it's just weird. So, and we know, you know, when someone, when a, someone dies, you, you have that. And what social media has done is sort of put more people in our lives, right? Um, that, that we have these, you know, or, or more, better way to put it is, I am in more other people's lives, right? There are people for whom if, you know, uh, the, who follow me on Facebook and who interact with me on Facebook, who I may not even met personally, right? Who I think will feel a loss when I die that they other, before social media, they never would have felt. And I can think about people close to me who, who died sort of pre-social media, who you would think I would have been, you know, fairly hit hard by, but no, not really. I just had a former student of mine who's a member of parliament in Kenya, uh, pass away this week from cancer, uh, misdiagnosed. And this is a gratitude point, misdiagnosed in Kenya with a medical system that's not so great. Uh, and you know, this is not a person who I've had a, conversation with in person in years and years and years. But he set up a Facebook page to deal with his cancer journey. And, you know, and so he was there. And obviously, you know, I, I happened to be getting infused at the time I saw it on my Facebook feed, which was really not great timing. But but again, that the loss has hit me harder than I would have imagined. But again, I think because there's this presence of the person. And so I, I don't know if I have a kind of major conclusion about all this. I just think that in a world where we have People who are in our lives, you know, digitally in those ways, who we don't even know and whose lives we are part of, death and grieving have this additional layer to it that perhaps it hasn't had before. I, you know, is that a good thing or a bad thing? I, I don't know, but I think it's real. I think this – you can look at this in the context of when you, you looked up your, your neighborhood's voting data and, you know, um, we – I mean, social media is not rhetorically popular right now. Everyone's everyone's attacking social media as the cause of basically every problem that America faces, and we we talk we talk trash about it. I mean, I I get this. Like, I routinely go through things of like, I want to should I quit Twitter because yes, I'll tweet, you should. <laughs> I'll, I'll tweet out something and I'll get a lot of good feedback, but then I'll get like a couple of really ugly sounding people, and it's just like, is this you know not worth it anymore um but but on the one hand it's like some of it's like it's like your neighbors right like that that social media were it's more performative than we we often admit and so the person who says parrots these god awful things that they heard on Fox News you know they're like they're they're just paraphrasing the racist comments that Tucker Carlson has made and shouting them at me um is 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 likely perform this maybe some of them are actually that awful but but they're likely performing and in their everyday lives they're 
real and genuine people who would come and help mow your lawn or shovel your driveway, right? And they're not actually like that in the same way that when I'm on these things, I am um, to a certain extent, I'm presenting a certain version of myself. But at the same time, that connection that you talk about, that bringing more people into your lives um, in in this really powerful way, and I, I don't know if I've talked about this on the show before, but so I'm just about a year ago, a guy I only knew online died suddenly, um, Brock Cusick, who we did an episode of Free Thoughts with actually. And he was just someone I knew on Twitter and he was just someone who – it was like you know two or three or four or five times a day, some thought of his appeared like on that thing in my pocket or in my office or you know on the computer while I was at home, like not in a – you know it's not like picking up and like reading the – you know the next George Will column and you're inviting George Will into your, you know, yeah. into your mental space to say dumb things about the NFL for a little while. Uh, <laughs> but but you're, you're like you're and it's not like talking to it's not like talking to a colleague even where I know there's there's kind of boundaries of like this is when I'm at work and I'm going to see this person but it's like this this kind of constant drip 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 of contact with people who you never would have experienced otherwise and and are just always there, um, and there's a lot of them. Like that's the thing. That's the like the the number of people. I don't know how many people follow you on Facebook. Yeah, about like five thousand friends and almost six thousand followers. So I check. Quite yeah. quite yeah. a lot more than you could like possibly yeah. know in any meaningful sense in real life. But they're all they're all there, and you are there, and this is fostering these these connections that even if they're colored through this performative angle, at some point if they go on long enough, become really genuine. And that genuine connection that is like contributes, I think, something really valuable in this like expanding sphere of human concern. Because these are the people who when Brock died, I you contribute to the the GoFundMe campaign and and it's, it's and it's because of these like real connections. And I think there's something lost when we just look at it as you know, because because when he died, it really it hit me much harder than I thought it would. That just this kind of constant drip, drip, drip just stopped, right? Um, and and I think we we overlook that aspect of it in favor of just seeing it as this this ugliness, which is frequently there. But like that that connection and that expanding is, I think, part of part of human progress is expanding our sphere of concern, and and it. I don't want to see us like lose that. And I think stories like what you've talked about with your Facebook thing are exactly why this stuff is so valuable. Yeah. yeah. No, I think that's right. And I think, you know, yes. The, and, and, and the word I like to use is curated, right? We, we, it's a curated version of ourselves that we present frequently on Facebook. But, but I do think what happens inevitably is the, 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 the real person comes through the, you know, everyone, whatever people think of my persona on Facebook, no one thinks that's all of me, right? But but it's enough of me, you know, and, and if you do enough stuff on Facebook and, you know, people who take me out to breakfast, they know what to order me if we go to a diner. They're going to hash <laughs> and eggs, right? So so there's that- While real, playing Rush. Yeah, right. Yeah, right, exactly. exactly right. You're 30% so, Rush. Yeah, yes. 30, that's right. That's right. <laughs> If, if only it would knock out the myeloma. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> yeah, so I mean, all those kinds of things, right? And I, so, yeah, I think that's exactly right. And I think that used wisely, social media can can do exactly what you're saying, Aaron, which is to sort of expand that sphere of concern. Um, and that, and that's as you say, that's why those GoFundMe's work and why people contribute to them. Uh, you know, you you. 
I'm, I've never met her, but I know her on Facebook and she seems like a good person. I know how hard she's tried to take care of this relative of hers. So yeah, right. If you have 25 bucks, you have 25 bucks. So I think that, I think that's right. And, and it, it has, you know, it, it comes with a downside, but, but yeah, I think it's, it's amazing what it can do when most of the time, much of the time when it works. You have any, uh, insights into the American medical system? Oh. So uh, let me, let me, Say one thing. I've had incredible care. Uh, the the quality of care that I've had uh, has been terrific. Uh, I'm very lucky to have uh, insurance through my wife's job. That has been the no. I think I've had to actually call the insurance company twice, right? In in almost two years, uh, and, and in both cases. They actually solved the problem like right away. So uh, uh, I, went to, I went to a pitch for him, but. Um, but so so in that sense, I haven't had those battles, but but it's so weird. It's just so weird. I I had this immunotherapy drug that was incredibly expensive, and it turns out that the company gives a discount, like this huge discount, right for for if, for certain sorts of things. And I said to the people at the hospital, "Is it income based?" And they said they said, "Yeah." I said, "Well, I'm not sure I'm going to qualify. So send it in." And I qualify, and it's ridiculous, right? I mean, you know, I, there was another case where I had, I mean, and, and this sort of notion that prices have any meaning whatsoever in this system. I was on another drug briefly. Might as well be monopoly money. I'll have 37 right. units well, right, of- Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. No, that's exactly right, right. So I was on this other drug that I couldn't keep taking because it was making matters worse rather than improving them. Um, but but it was like, okay, again, bit huge copay on it. And then it turned out that that- there was another program they had that would pick up the copay for you. And again, would I qualify? Well, it turns out I do. So, you know, it's like, what? This is just insane. And and the other, I mean, my first hospital stay back in, in November of 2017, I actually saw on the online system the, in, the internal bill that the hospital sent the insurance company before they, you know, negotiated, right? And it was, you know, that's a large number, okay? And then I saw the later number. I'm like, okay, what does this number mean now, right? And then I get a bill for like part of my deductible, right? Like, so I'm paying this. You guys agreed upon this, but the actual cost you claimed it was, none of those numbers make any damn sense. And and so, you know, the and the idea that you, you know, you go in, you just you go in and you get treated, and the doctor says, here's what we're going to do. This, you know, the, the decision about sort of what treatment to take on, right, is almost never discussed in financial terms. It's just assumed that whatever treatment it is, insurance will cover it, right? And sometimes, you know, you got to convince them, right? But, but and, and that, you know, it's hard with a disease like this, with, with something like cancer, right, to sort of say, well, wait, we should be asking those questions, especially with multiple myeloma. As I said earlier, there are multiple treatments available for this thing. And there's a sort of, you know... Um, a protocol and a kind of sequence that if one fails, you do this and others. But there's options, and I've and I've always had options presented to me. In fact, I recently got a second and a third opinion, and shockingly, the the transplant specialist said you should do a second transplant. The, the clinical research guy said, "Well, I've got clinical trials, right?" And my oncologist, who's you know sort of a community hospital person, says, "Let's keep going with the standard chemo." Shocked, <laughs> right? And but but sort of figuring out, all right, well, but what do you do with that, right? And and then the question becomes, should we have financial considerations here? What I mean, what are all the trade offs and things? And so I think for me, 
So that's that's the, the absence of any discussion at all about cost, and then to recognize that the numbers people throw around just are meaningless. It, it's just it's just crazy. It's it's completely crazy. So so you know that that that's a problem, right? And it's a problem uh, clearly I can't fix, and I'm lucky to have really good insurance where it hasn't where it hasn't been a problem for me. Uh, but you know, sort of uh, the other thing that that struck has struck me is how much. And, and I'm not sure this is a uniquely American problem, but how much you end up ha- having to rely on expertise, and you're buying in you know what economists call an experience good. You don't know what you get until you get it, right? And how? So here, as I was saying before, I got three doctors telling me three different things. How the hell do you decide what to do, right? And how do you triangulate that situation? And and you know, I'm a smart guy, <laughs> and I'm sort of struggling with this, and I just. You know, I sort of look around and wonder how people who who just you know, for whom this is overwhelming, deal with this. One of the first conversations I had with my oncologist, in fact, the first conversation I had with her, included a brief discussion of of the life expectancy numbers for for multiple myeloma patients, and the numbers she told me were a little lower than I'd been hearing from other people. And I had this look on my face, and she kind of waved her hand. She says, "Ah," she says, "Remember, right? Two things. One." These are numbers from people who were diagnosed years, you know, years ago, right? We don't know for sure what it's saying. She said, and second, you're young. People get this, tend to get this disease when they're older than you. They already have other stuff going on. So there's a lot of low numbers in there that are dragging down, you know, the mean. I said, oh, it's just like infant mortality, life expectancy, <laughs> yeah, right? But in reverse. And yeah. she says, yes. Right. And so, uh, so, okay, I can, I can understand that, right? In a way that, that, you know, as a friend of mine, I told that sort of friend said, wow, you have a statistically literate doctor. That's pretty rare. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I was thinking yeah, that exact same thing. So she is. When we libertarians, Cato, when we talk about healthcare, um, I was, I, a couple of weeks ago, uh, listened to a talk for our colleague, Michael Cannon, um, was giving to some people and talking about free market healthcare. And this question of because we're always saying introduce price considerations as a way like healthcare is you know, wildly inefficient in certain ways, or we spend probably more than we should, or we buy a lot of care that doesn't actually help us. And the problem with that is that all these crazy numbers that you talked about are basically hidden. We just pay a deductible and a premium and that's it. And so we don't think about this stuff. And so you might very well be like, I was told to get a transplant and to do clinical trials and to keep taking this stuff why not just do all three you know um like it's we don't we don't have a reason but the but when you the response to that is when you introduce the prices so if you were put in the position of there's there's three treatments in front of you um this one is likely to be 10% less effective than that one but cost 20% less this one has this sort of expectation but that like and and you're facing cancer diagnosis this is a tough thing like th- how it's not like when i go you know online to shop around for cell phones and if i screw up then i just have a crappy phone for you know 2 years until i can talk my wife into letting me buy another one right um like so that 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 mental space like how would you even begin to address those kinds I, of things i i don't th- I'm not sure it's all that much different where than where you are without prices. Only at least you have something here to sort of figure out, right? Is it is it worth the risk? Is it worth the is it worth the the, the cost? I mean, you know, I, I 
people can tell me, here are your treatment options and here's the odds and here's this and here's that, right? But one, right, those are all averages, so who knows what's going to happen. And, and, and you know, this particular disease comes in various flavors, so it matters which one you have. So, you know, I'm not sure it's that much worse than it is now, at least. But the hope would be having those things priced, it's not so much that the consumer is going to have to make those decisions, but having those things priced enables producers to sort of be more efficient and effective with the kinds of things they develop, right? I mean, this is the thing, right? You know, so a quick story. Uh, the the textbook I use for teaching intro in the chapter on demand curves has a question in the back that I've always assigned to students. It says, is basically the question is, you, is there a substitute for chemotherapy, right? Is the demand curve for chemotherapy vertical? And every, you know, for years, right, I've always made this, well, you know, there's other things you can do, blah, blah, blah. And then, whoops, suddenly, right, you start thinking, hmm, right, what what are my other, you know, sort of what are my other options? But, and in fact, there are, right? I mean, you know, and, and even, I think more importantly, even within chemotherapy, there's multiple options. And so, right, at least, at least we get people thinking in terms of how, you know, what are those options? What's the use of resources? And, and you know, it, it's separating my own situation from sort of, you know, the observing economist, right? It is true that we spend a lot of resources on end-of-life stuff that, you know, you probably can't justify, right? I mean, some at some level, from, from a strictly sort of economic efficiency standpoint, you can't justify. But tell that to the patient, right? Yeah. Um, and and now I'm the patient, right? And and I get it, right? I mean, you know, if someone comes to me and says, well, we can try this new drug, experimental drug, you know, it might get you another year. What am I going to do, right? And, and uh, you know, odds are I'm probably, I'm not, one, I don't even know what the trade-off is, right? I'm, insurance company's the one making that decision, right? But, but you know, it's hard to say no to that unless you're really at a point where you think, I just don't want to, I mean, I think I can imagine being at a point where the side effects are so significant where I'm like, no, you know what? I just don't want to live. I can't, my quality of life has deteriorated so much that no, I, I understand why people stop cancer treatment now in a way I never did before. Um, because uh, you, I, I'm, as you guys have seen today, I'm extremely fortunate to have really high quality of life right now, right? I mean, I have no, I'm not in any pain. I don't have any other organ issues. You know, I got cancer throughout my skeletal system uh and i got i got no hemoglobin <laughs> but you know uh, i'm severely anemic but but i don't i can do stuff right and and as long as i can do stuff let's keep treating it and let's keep doing these things if it gets to the point where we, the treatment is going to really destroy my quality of life then you got decisions to make right but i think it would be helpful if those decisions were priced and we really understood you know what? What is it that we're giving up to get you another X months or one year or whatever? I, 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 I to be honest with you, I, I dread that moment. I, uh, there's a, there's, you know, not a. There's things I dread. I really dread that moment where where a doctor says to me, you know what, and we can do this, but, right, and I, I'm, I don't know what I'll do. Uh, it's going to depend on on you know where I am and how I'm feeling in in that particular context. It seems that. With these treatment options, one of the issues that comes up when we talk about doing single-payer health care <clears throat> or education, I would say, too, mm -hmm. is this idea that that we know, or more specifically, the doctors know what the right answer is for treatment. So, like, so it's really just a matter of being like, you have X, that calls for treatment Y, um, 
And so I think people are thinking about a lot of medical care, like like you break an arm, mm-hmm. you know, that, that that does call for treatment. Why? I guess maybe there's some variance in there in terms of whatever, but it calls for treatment. Why? Let's assume it's not surgery. You set the bone and put a cast on. There you go. And they'd be like, okay, cancer requires treatment. Why? And then and all these things, which I think is a huge. The way you've been talking here, it's it's one of the myths you have to dispel to try and get over with what how we could provide Medicare med, medical care privately, and also the idea that education is just one thing too. Like what what does a six year old need? A six year old needs. This, 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 and this. A cancer patient needs this, 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 and this. You know, a person with AIDS needs this and this. But it's actually much more nuanced. It's your care. Yeah, right. right. It's it's your even without without the price. Right. 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 Even it's like you know this this much pain, this much uh, you know how long you're going to be weak, but with the what the ch- what the choices, what the chances are, that kind of thing. I think that's right. And 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 I, again, I'm very fortunate to have a doctor who, an oncologist who entertains these conversations with me and who encourages them, right? Which is okay. If we, so it's more like rather than you have X, do Y, it's okay, you, you have X. If we do A, what are the side effects? What, what, you know, what can we expect and for how long? If we do B, what are the side effects? What can we expect for how long? And the most interesting thing, it turns out, is if we do A, what, does that rule out doing in the future? It turns out, right, that some if you do certain sorts of treatments, you eliminate other treatment paths from being plausible. And so what's I mean it's sort of an opportunity cost question, right? What 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 are we giving up by doing this? And and in particular right now, so with you know, I could get into some clinical trials both for for some new drug combinations and for for advanced you know, CART T immunotherapy type stuff. But to be eligible for those, you have to have had failure of treatment at some number of treatments, but no more than another number of treatments, right? And so, and it varies. So if we do this thing, does this rule out the possibility of doing this other thing? How do we manage that? And it turns out what I'm I'm doing right now is a very, very conservative treatment path because we decided we wanted to leave open as many options as possible if this can't push things down to where we're we're a little bit happier. Even as we sit here, I'm actually waiting for some uh, probably tomorrow morning or the next morning, my some uh, test results that'll show up online that will tell us a little bit more about where things stand at the moment. So I'm a little nervous about that. But but sort of keeping options open is another thing that comes into this that people don't think about. Right? How how again? It varies from cancer to cancer, disease to disease. But but don't you know? Uh, for me, it's always been a good decision-making rule is if possible, don't foreclose options, right? And and so here we go. Don't foreclose the options here by 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 taking a treatment that, that might have the promise of being more effective, but if it fails, now you boxed yourself into a corner and you don't want to do that, right? So that that's another part of the story too. Do you have any uh, advice, uh, both life advice and if anyone finds themselves having a cancer diagnosis? Yeah. Um, I, I think you, what two things you you have to pretend that you don't have it. I mean, in some ways, you have to pretend. You have to do your best to be the you you've always been. So for me, doing stuff like this, right, working, traveling, getting into the office, and again, I'm lucky to have a doctor who totally gets that in general, but about me in particular, right? And sort of every time. I do stuff. I mean, I've been busy today. I flew out here. We walked to lunch, all these sorts of things. But I'm feeling pretty good, right? And it's I think it's because I'm doing the things that I love. So so I think that you the you, you the first piece of advice is 
if you let it take over your head, you've, you've, you're, you're not going to do as well. I mean, the one thing that every nurse and doctor has said to me, you know, when they meet me and sort of get to know me is your attitude will take you farther than it, than, right, than it would for other people. So I think there's that. I think there's, there's sort of, uh, and the best days are the days you forget. The days where you go through the day and at some point, like in the afternoon, you suddenly like, oh, sh- I have cancer, right? <laughs> right? And, and it's like, but good. I haven't thought about it for six hours, right? And that's, that's good. It, it just, you know, sort of pretending that it isn't there. Again, I'm, that's, I'm overstating it a bit, but, but sort of recognizing you have to continue on with your life. I think the other, the other piece of advice, uh, is, uh, t- is the gratitude stuff, right? I mean, you know, um, there's it's it, it it's better when you do it when you're not sick, <laughs> right? And so and I and I I had been even before I got sick I had been trying somewhat intentionally to be more to more conscious about saying thank you to people and sort of appreciating things that people have done for me and and all this and and um one of the interesting things about that by the way is it buys you this tremendous store of social capital and when you <laughs> screw up, right? People are incredibly forgiving of you when you screw up because you've always been the other guy, right? Uh, but I think that I think sort of recognizing that and sort of uh, uh, t- taking on the illness with a kind of spirit of okay, uh, I'm not going to sit around and moan and complain about how terrible things are. Uh, I'm not going to be that guy who you say how you doing? You say well, let me tell you, here's all my problems, right? Uh, no, it's you just you can't and 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 you uh, you, you need to find things. To live for, I think I in Facebook I called this the the Princess Bride question. If you remember the scene, right where Billy says, "What you got to live for?" Right, and and you should have an answer to that question. And I think if you have an answer to that question, you will find yourself sort of uh, uh, being able to to take things on. I had one other thing too that I was thinking about this week, and I'm guilty of this. Um, we often use. The language of cancer warrior and it's a battle and all this sort of stuff and and that's not wrong. Okay, I mean it. it there's, I'm constantly battling my own body in a way that is not enjoyable, but the reality of the lived experience is at least as much roll with it, right? Which is okay. You, here's what you need to do, Steve. You need to go to you know. Get infused every week and take this pill and go to this appointment. Okay, that's what I'm going to do, right? Don't you know? Take every pill, go to every appointment. Okay, your numbers came out bad. We got to change treatment. All right, what are we going to do? Let's figure it out. Let's make let's roll with it, right? Because you're, I think, if you approach it too much as a battle, you start fighting that too. You start fighting the things that can help you instead of fighting the things that are, that are, that are hurting you. It, it, so I just I, I'm always careful about that those war battle soldier metaphors, even though I kind of like them in some level because it feels that way at times. But it's also it's roll with it. All right, what do we do now? Tell me what I need to do to to take the next step to get better. Thank you for listening. If you enjoy Free Thoughts, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or in your favorite podcast app. Free Thoughts is produced by Tess Terrible and Landry Ayers. To learn more, visit us on the web at www.libertarianism.org.